You may be seated. Thank you very much, Eric, for those songs. "Twas with an everlasting love. I hoped you enjoyed singing the words from the English shipwright John Kent, who knew about the election of God. If you wanted to hear a technical explanation for what we believe when it comes to salvation, we are high Calvinists. We're not only hyper-Calvinists, because it doesn't take much to be a hyper-Calvinist. Hyper means going beyond the noun that's being modified. We're hyper-Calvinists in that we go beyond John Calvin and see things he didn't see and believe things he didn't believe. But we're high Calvinists in that we understand God's election and union in Christ from before the world beginning. There was eternal justification of His saints. Not justification by faith only, but eternal justification in faith shows our own consciences that justification, as we have studied many times before, Abraham was justified long before even this world was made, and he was justified before he came out of Ur of the Chaldeans, and he was justified before Genesis chapter 15 when he believed God and it was counted to him for righteousness. John Kent was a high Calvinist, and he wrote so much about election and our eternal union in Christ that his particular songbook, was uh, not used very widely, and most of his songs weren't used very widely because election was such a strong basis in them. And we just sang one of his. "'Twas with an everlasting love." Christ did come by God's ordination to redeem His elect. We just sang that if the ocean were an inkwell, and trees were our stalks and quills for our pens, And we spread the sky like a scroll. We could not write the whole of God's love. So then why do I think I can tell you about the love of God? Let's take a few minutes and learn and remind ourselves that God is love. And that God has loved. And that God's love is great and unchangeable and free. Immutable, as we sang in that first song as well. Great, immutable, and free. Immutable means it does not change. God doesn't set His love and then withdraw His love. God has set His love on us with an everlasting love, and it shall never be withdrawn from us. And every one that it was set upon shall spend an eternity in heaven because His love is potent and powerful. And it accomplishes the purpose to which it was sent. And that is to save us and to demonstrate His love to the universe. Not that his love failed in the vast majority, but that his love was most successful and victorious. God is love. 1 John 4, 8 and 1 John 4, 16 tell us. But his active and eternal affection for the good of people is only true of God's elect children. You heard Eric say a few moments ago that God's love is wider, and a superset to God's love. His goodness is wider than His love because His goodness extends to all creatures, but His love extends to His elect because He set His love upon them. The Bible does say that God is love, but what else does the Bible say about God's love? We want to look at that and remind ourselves, lest we jump to the heretical and idiotic conclusions that he must love everyone or everything, which the Bible does not teach, though it does say God is love. When it says God is love, that doesn't mean God has to love everyone. It doesn't mean God has to love everything. It just says God is love. God has love as one of his attributes. 
Earlier in that same epistle of 1 John, we read, God is light, meaning that He is holy and pure. And it's His holiness and purity that dictates what He loves, because He cannot love an unholy object, unless He has already purposed to save that unholy object and place them in the Lord Jesus Christ by His eternal decrees, where He views them in their eternal union with Him. You, you just sang a song where you used the word imputation. Those songs are so jam-packed full of doctrinal truth. Imputation's a Bible word where God accounts us, counts us, imputes us and reckons us as being righteous in His sight through the sacrifice of Jesus Christ, Amen. our Lord. What is love? Love is benevolent. That means kind. Affection of active and sacrificial desire for the highest benefit of another. Love, benevolent, kind affection that results in action and sacrifice for the highest good of another. Love is not lust. Lust is when a young man wants something that a young lady has, and though he might use the words love as the key to get to that treasure that she has that she ought to keep for her husband, it is not love. Love is a young man that wants to protect a young woman's virtue and would never touch her before he marries her. That's real love. It is sacrificial, and it desires her highest good. It doesn't desire his highest good. Now, the God of heaven is infinite in all his ways and perfect in all his doings, and his love is a demonstration of his great character, and it's for our highest good all at once, and that is realized through the Lord Jesus Christ, where he can realize the greatest demonstration of love to the universe by sacrificing his only begotten son so that he could, did, does, and will always love us. God's love for us is based in election. Look at Ephesians chapter 1 to begin. Election is God's will to choose certain to be saved. Whether we call them the vessels of honor or dishonor from Romans 9, 21, or whether we call them the vessels of wrath or the vessels of mercy from Romans 9, 22 through 24, it's all dependent upon God's choice. And let's look at a couple of references that remind us that God is love, but God chooses to set his love on certain people. Ephesians chapter 1, I've already referred to it in our first sermon this morning. Beginning at verse 3, Blessed, or blessed, be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, indeed, who hath blessed us with all spiritual blessings in heavenly places in Christ, according as He hath chosen us in Him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before Him in love having predestinated us unto the adoption of children by Jesus Christ to himself, according to the good pleasure of his will, to the praise of the glory of his grace, wherein he hath made us accepted in the beloved. Now that's a mouthful, and it's a long sentence, and there's a beloved in there, and there's in love in there, and there's spiritual blessings, all spiritual blessings, in Christ. Jesus Christ is God's beloved because God said of him, 
by thundering from heaven at his baptism and on other occasions, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. God loved his son, Jesus of Nazareth, but he had chosen us by covenant decree in the counsel of God before he created Adam and Eve, before the Spirit of God moved upon the face of the waters, and before God created the heaven and the earth in Genesis 1-1, He chose us in Christ Jesus. He put us in Christ Jesus. It tells us that in the fourth verse, that He hath chosen us in Him before the foundation of the world. All spiritual blessings are in Christ Jesus. Verse 3 tells us, one spiritual blessing is the love of God, and it's in Christ Jesus. Every good thing that we realize spiritually comes to us through Christ Jesus. And if you're Christ Jesus, then you were chosen in Him before the world began. And we were chosen in Him before the world began and before the foundation of that world was even laid, that we should be holy. So that the holy God that must hate sinners finds holy objects for Himself to love because He has chosen this entire drama. There was not one surprise, nor did we do anything to cause any confusion in the purpose of God by creating the human race. God created the human race after already choosing us in Christ Jesus. This is the most glorious love that has ever been designed. God chose to set His everlasting love upon us before He made Adam and Eve. He was not taken off guard by what they did. What they did allowed Him to demonstrate the fact that He would save us from those sins and demonstrate His love toward His wicked enemies, which men have never known nor understood, nor can they even write or describe in their romantic novels. This is the greatest love story ever because God is love, but His love is for His elect chosen people, and they were chosen in Christ Jesus, His beloved Son, before the foundation of the world, so that God viewed them as holy and without blame. Do you sin? Yes. Did Peter say about himself in Galatians, did Paul say about Peter in Galatians chapter 2, that he was to be blamed? This is an apostle later in his life, blamed by another apostle for his sin of hypocrisy. We are to be blamed in and of ourselves. But thanks be to God, before the foundation of the world, He chose us in Christ Jesus that we should be holy and without blame before Him in love. That act of His was to determine our destination beforehand, predestinated to adoption. We are the children out of this world, the children of wrath by nature, but the children of God by election. And we were predestinated to that adoption that we would become God's children because we were chosen in His beloved Son. And in His beloved Son, God is able and willing and chooses to accept us to the praise of the glory of His grace. And it's all by the good pleasure of His will. It is God's will. I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. So then it is not of Him that willeth, nor of Him that runneth, but of God that showeth mercy. It is not the human will at all that makes a difference. Man does not have a free will. Man has a depraved, rebellious, God-hating will. 
If man ever had a free will, it was only in the Garden of Eden. It was only one man, and he ruined it by the exercise of that will against God, which ruined his race after him, so that we have a depraved will. We choose willfully, willingly, cheerfully, eagerly, greedily, as the Bible would say, the things of the devil. We are his willing captives. We follow the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that works in the children of disobedience. It's God's will. So I quote for the third time, Romans 9, 15, I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion, and I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy. This operation of grace that chose us in Christ Jesus before the world began, that God could love us and that God could accept us through Christ His beloved Son is according to the good pleasure of His will. It was the pleasure of God's will to do it this way. It is not dependent on our will. It's His will. And this is how God loves us. It is based in election. When we saw in Romans chapter 9 and verse 13 that God loved Jacob but hated Esau, we backed up two verses to find out on what basis that was made. That the purpose of God, according to election, might stand. Because God makes choices among men. If God were fair, all men would be sent to hell. But God is better than fair. He's far better than we are. If you were God or I were God, we would all be sent to hell with what this race has done against Him. But His ways and thoughts are higher than our ways and thoughts. Praise God and thank thank you, Lord, for thinking differently than we think. Look at Romans chapter 11 and verse 28. I want to show you the love of God just tracking itself down through generations of men and coming to land upon a small segment of the Jews in Paul's day that he would say this about them. Romans 11.28 is concerning the gospel. They are enemies for your sakes, but is touching the election. They are beloved for the Father's sakes. Now God has, God has a people that He loves, but that body of people, some of them are made up because God has loved some of their fathers enough to promise them a seed forever. And so we find some here that are beloved for the Father's sakes. Now, do you care about apostrophes in your Bible? How much do you think the King James Version is inspired? Does it include apostrophes? If the apostrophe was in front of the S of fathers, what would it mean? That it was referring to God the Father. If it's after the S of fathers, what's it referring to? Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, that they would always have a seed. And so there was a seed even in this day out of faithfulness to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Now the seed is all part of the election. But the fact that certain individuals were elected that were Jews and that were not Gentiles was because God loved Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob so much, He was going to make sure that they had a seed that continued all the way down through the Apostle Paul's time. But I want you to notice what it says there. It says, Beloved, for the Father's sakes. So God is bestowing His love on His elect, but He makes sure that some of His elect meet all of His other promises. And one of those promises were to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And those three fathers had some that make up the body of the elect remnant that are described in Romans chapter 11, which in God's providence and my long life we may get to soon. But right now it's the love of God. 
Look at Deuteronomy chapter 7. Deuteronomy chapter 7. Somebody will say you're crazy. You believe the apostrophes are inspired? What a difference it makes in Romans eleven twenty-eight. You have to believe. It's part of the English language. It's part of language. It creates the possessive nouns that tell us that an ownership is involved there. I love, I love our Bibles. And all you children in here that are going to keep this church going when we're gone, you hold fast the Word of God right down to the apostrophes. Is the thief glad for the commas? That's another story. You're going to have to go look that up. When Jesus said, Today thou shalt be with me in paradise, the Jehovah's Witnesses and others move that comma around because they don't believe that the thief went to paradise that day. But Jesus said, Today thou shalt be with me in paradise. Deuteronomy chapter 7. Sorry for getting off track, but without the Word of God, I have nothing to tell you. You don't want my feelings or thoughts any more than your feelings or thoughts or any more than Charlie Manson's feelings or thoughts. I mean, we want the Word of God. And God has revealed these things to us by revelation. That this being, this Creator, that doesn't have to love, except this God does love. It is part of His nature. And He wants to demonstrate that love to the universe in saving us. We are the objects of His demonstration to the universe of what kind of a being He is. That He can love His enemies and send His only begotten Son to take rebel criminal reprobates and adopt them. That is unbelievable. And He wants to demonstrate it to the universe. He wants to show the angels that He did not do that for their race of beings so that they can see the wisdom of God in the salvation of men. It's Ephesians chapter 3 and verse 10. It's 1 Peter chapter 1 and verse 12 that the angels desire to look into these things because God is going to demonstrate to them, I love men. But I didn't save any of you fallen wretches. The lake of fire was prepared for the devil and his angels. Do you know how much that's going to hurt the devil? Do you think the devil's getting away with something right now? The devil isn't getting away with anything. And the devil is going to have eternity to pay viewing you and me dancing in glory in the new heaven and the new earth forever because God chose to love us. And even the elect angels are servants of ours in heaven because we are the sons of God. We are joint heirs with the Son of God. And let me tell you who reports to the Son of God like this. It's the angels. All principalities and powers have been made subject to Him. Deuteronomy chapter 7, this is the church of God of the Old Testament, verse 7. The Lord did not set His love upon you. Now I want to tell you right now, and we should know this about the nature of love. Love is not a bare feeling. Love is not chemistry. Love is not something that happens to you. Love is a choice you make. When the Bible says husbands love your wives, it's not waiting. You don't wait around for something to happen to make your wife lovable to where all of a sudden you are forced, coerced, seduced into loving her. It's a choice and you make it happen. Husbands love your wives. Wives, old women are to, aged women are to teach the younger women to love their husbands. Keep yourselves in the love of God. The Bible says in the book of Jude, because love is a choice. We set our love. The Bible says in Colossians chapter 3, set your affection on things above. 
Do you know why you love heavenly things and spiritual things less than you should? Because you haven't set your full affection there yet. You still have your affection set on things on the earth. Get get it off those things and set it in heaven. It's a choice that we make. Love is a choice. Love is a choice. Chosen in Christ before the world began. Love is a choice according to the good pleasure of His will. I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. It is a choice. Deuteronomy 7, 7, The Lord did not set His love upon you, nor choose you, because ye were more in number than any people, for ye were the fewest of all people. But because the Lord loved you. Now, because the Lord loved you, He did what? He set His love upon you. God chose to love Israel because He loved them. He had made His mind up and His purpose and His eternal counsel that He was going to love the church of Israel. And Israel is the picture of the church of the Old Testament. Because the Lord loved you. And because He would keep the oath which He had sworn unto your fathers. There we go again. No, is it all, I hope it all comes together in your minds. Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Hath the Lord brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you out of the house of bondmen from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. God had purposed to love the nation of Israel. He loved them in part because of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob's sake. He set His love upon them, and He chose them, not because they were a big nation or an impressive nation, but because they were the smallest of nations. He set His love on them. The love of God is based in election. It's based in God's choice of choosing those that He loves. Love is by a covenant with His people. Look at Isaiah chapter 38. You know, marriage is a covenant. Did you read it? Those of you that read Ezekiel chapter 16 last night, did you read about a covenant in there? God had made a covenant with them. It was the time of love when God passed by that nation. Your mother was a Hittite. Your father was an Amorite. You had nothing going for you above the Canaanites. That's the lesson. It's stated twice in Ezekiel 16. You had nothing going for you different than a Canaanite. And do you know what happened to the Canaanites? God annihilated them all. You had nothing going for you, but when I passed by and saw you in your blood, and it was the time of love. Who said it was the time of love? There's only one being that's in charge of time and chance. God said it was the time of love. And I made a covenant with thee, and I cast my garment over thee, and I embraced thee, and I washed thee, and I swaddled thee, and I accessorized thee, and I dressed thee, and I caused thy hair to grow out, and thy breast to be fashioned large and beautiful, and I made thee the renown of all nations to his church. Ezekiel 16 is a wonderful love story. You remind Jordan, you remind my son Shane and our son Shane that his favorite word is in here. And I reminded my wife last night that the word nevertheless is his favorite, one of his favorite words, if not his favorite word in the whole Bible because of Ezekiel 16. That horrible story in Ezekiel 16 of that little baby not swaddled, not salted, not clothed, not washed, dying in its own blood in a field. And God passed over it and said, live. It's repeated to us twice, isn't it? So that you will not lose any of the emphasis. Live. And you became mine. And I became yours. And I made a covenant with you. And then she grew up and she had all this gold and silver that her 
husband had given her. He gave her all the riches of Egypt. He gave her all the riches of Canaan so that she was very rich. Then she took that gold and silver and started making idols to foreign gods. And do you know how God compared that? He gets very graphic. He gets very graphic, more graphic than I am in the pulpit. Because some of you cannot bear truth yet. Hopefully you'll grow into it. If you read Ezekiel 16 and even think about the words, what are being described there is God taking idolatry and turning it into the most licentious woman possible and what she does with things in her body and how she hires the men to come to her rather than earning the pay of a prostitute. God said it makes sense for a woman to get paid for giving her body away to men that are not her husband. But for a woman to pay her lovers to come to her is absurd. And you took the money I gave you and hired them to be your lovers. That's how he describes idolatry. Because he was their God and she went to another God. She, meaning the nation of Israel, the church of God. And it's horrible. The, 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 the most graphic way that God can describe how bad idolatry is and the most graphic way how God can describe how bad it is to be a friend of the world is to describe an adulterous woman along the likes of Ezekiel chapter 16, and that's not the only chapter like that in the Bible. And it's horrible, and it's graphic, and you should get into the details of it so that you can understand what God thinks of idolatry. But then he chastens her for it. He strips her naked in front of all the nations. He ruins her in front of all of them. But you know what? He's doing it out of love because he still loves her because he has a covenant with her. And so we come to that favorite word, and it's in verse... I'm not even, you're in Isaiah 38 where you're supposed to be, but my mind's already run to Ezekiel 16 where it should be as well. Ezekiel chapter 16. As we come to the conclusion of that long chapter, you have a section of about 15 verses that describes God loving that little baby in the field. Then you have about 45 verses in the middle describing her wickedness. Then you come to the 60th verse and it says, Nevertheless, nevertheless, in spite of what you've done. Nevertheless, I will remember my covenant with thee in the days of thy youth, and I will establish unto thee an everlasting covenant. And he goes forth and describes that, and you'll know that I am the Lord, because I have been pacified toward thee for all that thou hast done, saith the Lord God. Do you know how the Lord God is pacified toward us? It's not because he sent the Babylonians and the Assyrians and the others to beat on us as sent the Lord Jesus Christ. He's pacified toward us fully. We've all been, we've all committed spiritual adultery so many times and so heinously and so wickedly, yet he's pacified toward us because he's made us accepted in the beloved. I hope you can fit all these together. This is what it all means. It's one lesson of the gospel from the first of the Bible to the end of the Bible. Isaiah 38 and verse 17 would put it this way. Behold, for peace I had great bitterness, but thou hast in love to my soul delivered it from the pit of corruption for thou hast cast all my sins behind thy back. In love to my soul, God has cast all our sins behind his back. Remember, the foolish shall not stand in thy sight. Thou hatest all workers of iniquity. But all our sins are cast behind the back of God, where God has said about his covenant with them in Hebrews 8 and Hebrews 10, their sins and their iniquities will I remember no more. 
And that is how God loves us, and that is how God continues to love us, and that is how the only negative events that come in our lives are really positive events because they are sent in chastening love just to turn us back into the way of righteousness so that we can benefit and please Him more perfectly. This is the love of God toward His people. God loves those that He knows. I know my sheep and am known of mine. He will never say to them, I never knew you. He's always known. We've been foreknown. Mean known before the world began. You say, how could God know me when I didn't exist? Well, how could He choose you in Christ when Christ didn't exist? Jesus wasn't to be born for 4,000 years of time, and you weren't to be born for 6,000 years of time, because it was all by covenant. He chose us in Christ Jesus before the world began because He had already set up the Word of God to come and be the Son of God in time. It's a matter of a covenant, a decreed will of God, a testament to be fulfilled in time. Thank you, blessed God, for doing that. Look at Hebrews chapter 12. I was just talking about His chastening. Oh, that nation of Israel was pummeled and pounded by the Syrians and then the Assyrians and then the Chaldeans. But oh, there was love expressed in that as you should be able to see even reading Ezekiel 16. All of us are equal to the woman of Ezekiel 16. I love these verses. Adam, let them give you another one. Hebrews 12 In verse 6, For whom the Lord loveth, he chasteneth, and scourgeth every son whom he receiveth. If ye endure chastening, if, that means not everyone does, if ye endure chastening, God dealeth with you as with sons. For what son is he whom the Father chasteneth not? He's not a son. But if he be without chastisement, whereof all are partakers, an ellipsis should be there of sons, whereof all sons are partakers, then are ye bastards and not sons. Not not that the text should be changed. I was just supplying a word that was left out by ellipsis. I would never change the text, except to give you the sense of it. But if he be without chastisement, verse 8, whereof all are partakers, not all, sons and bastards aren't partakers, it's all sons that are partakers of chastisement. Then are ye bastards and not sons. Notice that. This text tells us that there are bastards that God doesn't chasten. He's the one that made up the word bastard and put it in the Bible. He put bastard in the Bible. Don't blame me for using bastard in the pulpit when bastard's in the Bible. A bastard is a person that's an illegitimate son. They're not a real son. They're a fake son. They were born out of wedlock. They're not gods. They're not Christ. Because if you're gods and if you're Christ and God loves you, He's going to chasten you, but some He doesn't chasten. And so whenever God chastens us, we thank God for His love toward us and bringing us back into the right way and proving His love to us. God has not promised that His children are going to have a bed of roses in this life. God has promised that He will chasten them and bring them back into the way of righteousness. And He's promised us that when He chastens us, it's proof that we won't be condemned with the world. This passage right there proves that God does not love everyone. If God loved everyone, then He would chasten everyone. If God loved everyone, they would all be His sons. But they are not all His sons. They are not all loved. Some of them are bastards, and they're not chastened, and they're not sons. That's why they're called bastards. Why is this subject so difficult? 
Because the devil is a liar and men want a God that loves everyone as if they have something in their nature that makes them lovable. There's nothing in our nature that makes us lovable. The only way that God could love us is in the one nature that is lovable. The Lord Jesus Christ, my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. He is the only one that has pleased God like that. And it's in Him that we have our salvation from top to bottom. God loves His children only. Look at Revelation chapter 3. Oh Lord, have mercy upon me and help me. Revelation 3.19, I'm sorry I elaborate on some of these passages, but I do it for your understanding to appreciate them as fully as you should. Revelation 3.19, as many as I love, I rebuke and chasten. Does God rebuke and chasten all? No, these are His children, these are His people, to whom He sent the Lord Jesus Christ and His apostles. Be zealous, therefore, and repent. Further proof, and there's many more beyond this. Despise not the chastening of the Lord, brethren, for whom the Lord loveth, He chasteneth. And God chastens us in all kinds of different ways. And sometimes those ways are very painful. And if the Corinthians were here to give a testimony this afternoon, they would tell you that it might involve a premature death. But it's still chastening. And it still is proof that they're not going to be condemned with the world. Because He has everlasting love set upon them. And He will never let a single one of them go, even though they might fall so far in their foolish practical way of living that He would have to cut them off in judgment in a church to make a lesson to the rest of the church that they should not abuse the Lord's Supper the way some of those Corinthians were. And yet, He wants to remind the church at Corinth in the middle of that that those stones out there in the church cemetery, they're in heaven. Because I have set my everlasting love upon you. We don't ever want to use that to excuse sin. We never want to let that comfort us when we're walking in the flesh. But praise God, you can't be separated from the love of God even by you being the creature that sins against your Creator. God set His love on Samson and Samson's in heaven. God set His love on Lot and Lot's in heaven. God set His love on Solomon and I know Solomon's in heaven because God loved him. His name was Jedediah. Ephesians 5, the love of God. Oh, the love of God. The the universe exists with men for two reasons, that God might show His wrath and His power. Let's say that we've covered that under omnipotence and terribleness. We've already looked at the attributes that God wanted to display to the universe in the judgment of the devil, His angels, and wicked men. He said that's why He did it. Romans 9, 22 through 24. What if God... This is a rhetorical question. What if God, willing to show His wrath and to make His power known, endured with much long suffering the vessels of wrath fitted to destruction? That's why they exist. That's why God is long-suffering right now, waiting for the great day of judgment in which He will display His wrath and His power upon the wicked. And that He might make known the riches of His glory on the vessels of mercy which he had afore prepared unto glory, even us, whom he hath called, not of the Jews only, but also the Gentiles. That's as good as it gets right there. That tells you why the whole world exists, why there's sin and evil, why there's a hell. It's for the display of God's wrath and his power on the vessels of wrath, and it's for the display of his glory on the vessels of mercy. That is why. Ephesians chapter 5, I used this this morning. Please allow me to use it again very, very quickly. Verse 25, Husbands, love your wives, even as Christ also loved the church and gave Himself for it, 
that He might sanctify and cleanse it with the washing of water by the Word, that He might present it to Himself a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that it should be holy and without blemish. Does that sound similar to the election in chapter 1? Very similar. Very similar words. Jesus Christ died to make those given to Him in Ephesians chapter 1 holy and without blemish to present to Himself a perfect church. He loved the church. He doesn't love all men. He loved the church. What is the church? It is the body of all the elect of God. This is the church of all the elect. All those God has chosen in Christ. All those that Christ died for. All those that Christ has committed to sanctify and perfect, which He has done. The love of God. It's the highest, in, in this book of Ephesians, it's the highest goal for your searching is to find out the love of Christ. Do you remember what verses 14 through 19 are like in this third chapter? When it says, I bow my knees to the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, by whose name that that the family of God is named in heaven and in earth, that you would all understand the dimensions, the length, the breadth, the height, the depth of the love of Christ, that you might be filled with all the fullness of God. It's the highest subject you can aspire to. It is not some subject in this world, and there's nothing else in the Bible that is quite like the love of Christ for us sinners. that you might be filled with all the fullness of God. What was it that motivated the Apostle Paul the way that it did? Why was Paul beside himself in the way that he lived his life? No time for pleasure. It was all to serve the Lord Jesus Christ. The love of Christ constraineth me. Because we thus judge that if one died, that he... that uh, Well, it's in Second Corinthians chapter 5. I'm glad we have the Bible in writing, and I know that you are. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 14, For the love of Christ constraineth us, because we thus judge that if one died for all, then we're all dead, and that he died for all, that they which live should henceforth live un- should not live unto themselves, but unto him which died for them and rose again. That is what drove the Apostle Paul, that God had so much love through Jesus Christ, that without that love from God for him, he was dead. And since Jesus Christ had died for him and given him life, he ought to use that life for God. It was a reasonable, rational, logical argument to Paul. It was just 2 plus 2 equals 4. I was dead. God sent his son Jesus Christ to die for me. Therefore, I owe him my life. How hard is that for you to grasp? Therefore, brethren, I beseech you with the mercies of God that you present your bodies a living sacrifice. It's that simple. It's our reasonable service. According to Romans chapter 12. Look what Paul would say in Philippians chapter 2. Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians chapter 2. Starting off with verse 1. If, if there be therefore any consolation in Christ. Sometimes Paul, play, sometimes Paul plays with language to get our attention. If there be therefore any consolation in Christ. He's playing with the doctrine by wanting to put it in front of us and say what effect should this have on your lives If there be therefore any consolation in Christ, if any comfort of love, is there any comfort from the love of God for you? Then he goes on and tells you what you ought to be doing. Verse 2, Fulfill ye my joy, that ye be like-minded, having the same love, being of one accord, of one mind, let nothing be done through strife. And it goes on to describe our duties as believers in a church. And it's based on, if there be any consolation in Christ. Is there any consoling comfort in the Lord Jesus Christ and what He's done for you? Is there any 
comfort of love. There's, there's more than enough, Lord. There's more than enough. We ought to be living our lives completely for You. Look at 1 John chapter 4. 1 John chapter 4, the love of God. 1 John 4, 9, In this was manifested the love of God toward us. Do you really want to see it displayed? In this was manifested. Remember that you know the word manifest. It's a list of things that are hidden from sight, usually a cargo list of what's hidden in the hold of a ship. But when it's brought out and shown to us or we're shown the list, we know what's inside the ship. And God showed us what His love was all about this way. In this was manifest the love of God toward us because that God sent His only begotten Son into the world that we might live through Him. Herein is love. Not that we loved God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. That is the demonstration, that is the revealing, that is the manifestation of God's love, Him sending His Son. How higher can it possibly get than God sending His Son and bruising His Son and pouring His wrath out upon His Son instead of you that deserve the wrath or me that deserve the wrath? This is the love of God. Look at chapter 3 in the same epistle. Verse 1, Behold! Behold! That is, look! See! Consider! Behold! What manner! This is the kind of love the Father hath bestowed upon us that we should be called the sons of God. Therefore the world knoweth us not because it knew Him not. This is the difference between the world and the elect. The world doesn't know who the elect are. The world doesn't give the elect the the praise, the protection, and the honor that they should be giving them because they don't know us any more than they knew Him. Beloved, now are we the sons of God, and it doth not yet appear what we shall be, but we know that when He shall appear, we shall be like Him, for we shall see Him as He is. And every man that hath this hope in him purifieth himself, even as he is pure. If these verses mean anything to you and you want them true in your life, then you're going to be pure because He's pure, and that's the evidence that God's love is upon you and what manner of love it is. He has adopted you to be His Son. You're a joint heir with the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is the beloved Son of God, and we're brothers on an equal footing when it comes to the inheritance. Incredible! And angels are our servants. This is the love of God. It's part of His nature. God is love. Yes, God is love. God loves His people through the death of His only begotten Son, Jesus Christ. You'll never be separated from the love of God. Isn't that wonderful? We'll never hear the words, depart from me, I never knew you. It will be more like, it's good to see you. I've always known you. I've always loved you. I've had your name. This is what the Bible says. I've had your name inscribed in the palm of my hand. I've had your name in the book of life. You got excited on earth when you found out that I had written the name Cyrus 200 years before the king of the Persians was born in Isaiah 44 and 45. But I've had your name written in the book of life before I made Adam and Eve. This is what the Lord says in the Bible. This is God's love. You'll never be separated from it. Paul said he was persuaded neither height nor depth nor any other creature, neither death nor life, persecutions, nothing. Things present, things to come, 
There's nothing that's going to come in this universe that can separate you from the love of God. God has set His love on you and He will never withdraw that love. He has paid the price of His only begotten Son so that the Bible says, how shall He, having delivered up His Son for us, also not freely give us all things? Romans chapter 8 and verse 32. Because God's given His Son the greatest thing for us, everything else is going to follow. Oh, and He's making intercession for us all the time through the Lord Jesus Christ. He's never going to forsake us. There's always a reminder there at the right hand of God. Look at Romans chapter 8 with me. We could look in three different places, but let's look in Romans chapter 8 since we referred to it several times. That's where the apostle said, I'm persuaded that neither death nor life nor angels nor principalities nor powers nor things present nor things to come nor height nor depth nor any other creature shall be able to separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. If the devil were allowed to get into the great day of judgment and tell the Lord what you've done in your life, would that hinder his love for you? Well, it depends on how we want to look at it. The devil's not going to be allowed in there because the accuser of the brethren was cast down 2,000 years ago because there's not enough room in heaven for Jesus Christ and the devil. He was cast out 2,000 years ago. He can no longer accuse the brethren because who shall lay anything to the charge of God's elect? Verse 33. Nothing can be laid to your charge. That's why you're elect. You were chosen in Christ to be holy and without blame. Does it all fit together? This is the love of God. You can bask in it all day long. You can bask in it all night long. It doesn't matter about your sins. Jesus paid for all your sins. Don't tell me about you sin too much. You sin too heinously. You don't even know what you're talking about. You're nearly blaspheming when you start thinking or talking that way. It is the devil giving you those thoughts. It is not the Holy Spirit giving you those thoughts. Those are not holy thoughts. Those are blas- those are contradictory thoughts to the Word of God. All your sins have been washed away, and sinners greater than you have had their sins washed away. We just sang about 10,000 sins as black as hell. Washed away with the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ so that He can love us. Who shall lay anything to the charge of God's elect? It is God that justifieth. It's God that said, I'm going to count the righteousness of Jesus Christ for Jonathan Crosby, and I'm going to count Jonathan Crosby's sins to the Lord Jesus Christ, and there's going to be a transaction on Calvary to pay for them all and give Him all that righteousness. And it's the same true for every one of us that believe and obey. Not everyone that saith unto me, Lord, Lord, shall enter into the kingdom of heaven, but he that doeth the will of my Father which is in heaven. There's the evidence. And you can lay hold of a sure foundation against the day to come, and you can make your calling and election sure, since it says, who shall lay anything to the charge of God's elect? It should be important to you to make your calling and election sure. Verse 34, who is he that condemneth? Those of you that condemn yourselves, you are very, very twisted. Do not condemn yourself. God doesn't condemn you. Jesus doesn't condemn you. Why are you condemning you? Who is he that condemneth? It is Christ that died. Jesus died. And when you condemn yourself, you are saying Jesus' death was not good enough. That is what you're saying. That is not coming from the Holy Spirit. It's not coming, it's not even coming from a neutral mind. Those are the fiery darts of the devil to discourage you and to ruin the gospel in your heart and mind. You should be fully assured of these things. Paul was. Paul had more sins than you could even dream up. He was the chief of sinners. But he knew that the soul that he had committed to safekeeping to God would be kept safe through the Lord Jesus Christ. He knew that he could not be separated from the love of God. He knew that nothing could be laid to his charge because he was one of God's elect. Who is he that condemneth? It is Christ that died, 
yea, rather, there's something even better than his death, that is risen again, who is even at the right hand of God, who also maketh intercession for us. If Christ had died and not risen from the dead, we would not know if he had paid for all our sins or not, but he did rise from the dead. And not only did he rise from the dead, he sits at God's right hand and he's making intercession for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall all these things that we go through when the Roman Catholic Church or the pagan Romans put us in the Colosseum and tribulate us or distress us or persecute us or famine or nakedness or peril or sword when they ruin us economically because we wouldn't receive the mark of the beast, we couldn't buy or sell with the rest of the world, and so they cast us out in the middle of the winter without clothes or any economic means of survival? Will we still make it? The whole religious world and those that claim the name of God and those that claim the name of Jesus Christ and those that have crucifixes in all their churches, they're the ones that have cast us out. Will we survive? And everyone that received the mark of the beast be cast into a lake of fire and brimstone and be tormented in the presence of the Lamb and the presence of the angels forever and ever. Here is the patience of the saints. What's the worst thing that's happened to you about following Jesus Christ? Does it fit in that verse? It doesn't even get close to that verse. Look at that verse, Romans 8.35. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Those things that are then listed, you haven't endured them, I haven't endured them. We're not even close. And yet I want to tell you that you can't be separated from the love of Christ. You can't be separated from the love of God. You know, in John chapter 10, it says we're in Christ's hand. And then it says we're in God's hand. And who can pluck us out of either hand? No one. Here it says we can't be separated from the love of Christ. Then it says we can't be separated from the love of God. How much safer do you want to be? It's amazing. People will put trust in daddies, mommies, grammies, that they love them. On what basis do you think a daddy or a mommy or a grammy love you? Forgive me, daddies and mommies and grammies. On what basis, what have you ever done for a child to show them love? They give me an allowance, a dollar a week. They bring home the bacon. They bought me a tricycle. Keep going. Can, can, can you do better? They kiss me goodnight on my forehead. Precious. I'm glad. What have they done for you? But yet, I know they love me. If you were to ask a child, does your father love you? Yes. How do you know? He bought me a present on my birthday. He told me he loved me three months ago. Give me something better. Well, every time I come over, they hug me. My Grammy always hugs me. She makes me cookies and milk. Whenever she thinks my dad's being a little too hard on me, she jumps in and tries to help me. Oh, is that love? I'm, I want, I'm wanting to ask you to think. You, you would say to me, I know they love me. And I'm not making fun of a father's love for his children or a mother's love for their children or a grandmother's love for their children. I am trying to make you think because when you compare it to the love of God and what he has done for you, it is to be made fun of. Because it's not even comparable. And there is no basis for you to believe that any other human being loves you in comparison to what God has written, has sent to you in writing and what he did with his only begotten son. 
I hope you understand the method of my madness or the reason for my madness and some of the things I say because I want you to think and realize how great God's love for us is and how you cannot be separated from it. How do you know that your parents aren't going to change? How do you know that your grandparents aren't going to change? We're all capable of changing, but God cannot change. Our confidence in the love of God is not found in our circumstances of life. Ecclesiastes chapter 9, verses 1 and 2 tell us that when we look around and see what happens to the wicked and what happens to the righteous, the love or hatred of God cannot be known. So do not measure the love of God by circumstances. Measure the love of God by the testimony of Scripture and the evidence of those that He loves from the Scriptures. Make your calling and election sure, and then you don't care about your circumstances. You don't care if it's the people that call themselves Christians that are burning you at a stake like the martyrs for 1,260 years in the history of the dark ages of Europe. You're in Romans. Look at Romans chapter 5 where it says that God does something special for us when we're obeying Him and walking with Him. I want you all to know the love of God better than just me preaching it. I want you to know the love of God better than you reading it in the Scriptures. I also want you to have the testimony of God, the Holy Spirit that cries, Abba, Father, out of your heart, through your heart, where you're addressing God and you know He is your Father and He is never going to forsake you and He sent His Son to die for you. And you are His and He is yours forever. That is a testimony of the Holy Spirit of God. Romans chapter 5 and verse 5, And hope maketh not ashamed, because the love of God is shed abroad in our hearts by the Holy Ghost which is given unto us. God has given the Holy Spirit to those that believe on Him, and the Holy Spirit from the inside out sheds abroad. That means He turns a light on in all the nooks and crannies of your heart where you have doubts rising about whether God loves you or not and and drives them all away with the brightness of the Holy Spirit. He is able to do that when you, being justified by faith, have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, by whom also, verse 2, we have access by faith. Do you believe? Do you believe? Do you believe? How big is your faith? Do you believe? Believe the written record of God, by whom also we have access by faith, by believing into this grace wherein we stand and rejoice in hope of the glory of God. And not only so, but we glory in tribulations also, knowing that tribulation worketh patience, and patience experience, and experience hope, and hope maketh not ashamed. No matter what bad things happen to us, God said it, that settles it. I believe it. God loves me. And the more you believe, the more God will send the power of the Holy Ghost upon you. Romans 15, 13 puts it this way. But the, now the God of hope, Romans 15, 13, now the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing that ye may abound in hope through the power of the Holy Ghost. The Holy Ghost has a powerful ministry in those that God loves to convince them and comfort them and reassure them that God loves them so much so that they cry, Abba, Father. When do you know it? The more you're walking with God and the more that you're believing His written word, the stronger that witness is. It is the power of the Holy Ghost according to Romans 15.13. When you look at Romans 15.13, I'll tell you what God's doing. Hope is what God does. Joy is what God does. Peace is what God does. And it's by the power of the Holy Ghost. There's one thing in that verse that you do. What is it? Find the Word. In believing. 
We believe what God has testified about His Son. We believe what God has testified about us. We believe what God has said is the evidence of His children. We believe it. And when we believe it, in believing, the God of hope fills us with joy and peace, and we abound in hope through the power of the Holy Ghost. It is not just me being able to preach didactic truth from the Word of God, doctrinal truth from the Word of God, and dot my I's and cross my T's and give you cross-references. It is not enough. It is for you to obey. And the more you obey, the power of the Holy Ghost sheds abroad that message that's on these printed pages through your heart. And that is the greatest combination ever. God, the Holy Spirit, through the power of the Holy Ghost, the Spirit that moved upon the face of the waters, testifying in your heart that you're a son of God. You read the printed page. It agrees with what the Holy Spirit's telling you. You rise in confidence. You're full of faith, hope, joy, and peace. And you rejoice as a child of God. God did not leave us here, nor did He design for us to go through our lives doubting our salvation. And I don't want you to doubt your salvation. Oh, God loves us, and His love is so precious. Amen. When I quote to you Psalm 127, this is just this is often a little track. Psalm 127, verses 1 and 2. Except the Lord build the house, they labor in vain that build it. Except the Lord keep the city, the watchman waketh but in vain. It is vain for you to rise up early, to stay up late, to eat the bread of sorrows. For so he giveth his, his what? His, his beloved. What does he want to give him? Sleep. So you've got something pressing on you. You've done your reasonable best toward it. You know what he, you know what this God that loves you? I know this is a little track. Sending his son to save us from an eternal Condemnation in hell is the big one. This is just a little one, but I just want you to delight in the love of God. He wants you to go to sleep. Do you know how much this God loves His children? He has made them vulnerable. He has made Himself vulnerable to them so that they can take Him in a wrestling match. Jacob took out the Most High God, the Omnipotent God, the All-Powerful God in a wrestling match where His name was changed from Jacob to Israel. Because as a prince, you have prevailed with God. How's that for love? You think you have a problem in your life? Go go wrestle a little bit. You say, I've been wrestling. Well, Jacob had been wrestling, and the angel said, let me go because it's almost light time and I need to go back where I came from. And Jacob said, I'm not going to let you go till you bless me. Do you have that kind of faith? God's made himself vulnerable to us. That if we would wrestle with him, he's ours. His power. You know how much power there is in God? Esau came and kissed his brother Jacob with 400 men with those 12 boys, 12 years of age and under. Is that an impressive scene? Did he get the answer to his prayer request? He kissed him and then Esau said, I don't want all this stuff you gave me. What's all this junk you've been sending me? I've been coming and I keep getting these batches of stuff and saying for my Lord Esau, Brother! What are you giving me all that stuff? Keep it. I don't need it. Who could have arranged all that? The God that loved Jacob and hated Esau arranged it. God is so personal in His love for His children. I hope you saw that from Romans 11.28 that He even has elect. Now election is for His praise and glory. But some elect are for the Father's sakes with the apostrophe on the right side of the S. David could say, out of all the tribes of Israel, 
God chose Judah. Out of all the families of Judah, God chose Jesse. Out of all the sons of Jesse, he liked me. Two passages and we close. Please allow me. 1 John chapter 4. Do you want to know that God loves you? Do you want to prove it? This is a transferable attribute. This is a participatory attribute. This is a communicable attribute. Meaning that God communicates it to us by regeneration so that we have, we have the divine power and the divine nature within us by, in our new man and by the power of the Holy Ghost to love others the way Jesus and God have loved us. A, a lesser degree, but the same type of love, the same kind of love. And it's by that love that we know we're in God and God in us. Let's flip back to chapter 3. I'm limiting myself to two passages. They're not the shortest, but they're two passages. 1 John chapter 3 and verse 14. Will you please follow along? We have talked about the hatred of God today. We have talked about the love of God. We have seen both in the Word of God. How do I know that God no longer hates me, that I'm in Christ Jesus, that my sins have been paid for and covered, cast behind His back? He'll never remember them again. There is nothing to lay to my charge, and that He loves me with an everlasting love, and I'll never be separated from that love. How do you know? By having that trait in your life. When we look at the eight things that you can make, by which you can make your calling and election sure, the last two are brotherly kindness and charity. Love is very important. It's the more excellent way of serving God. It is more excellent than being an apostle. It's more excellent than being a pastor. It is learning to love other people the way the Bible defines love. I've preached it many times. The sermon series is entitled, Love is the Greatest. But here's the Word of God. Two passages. Verse 14 of 1 John 3. We know, and I want you to know, We know, and I want to know. We know that we have passed from death unto life because we love the brethren. He that loveth not his brother abideth in death. Whosoever hateth his brother is a murderer. And ye know that no murderer hath eternal life abiding in him. Hereby perceive we the love of God because he laid down his life for us. And we ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. But whoso hath this world's good, and seeth his brother have need, and shutteth up his bowels of compassion from him, how dwelleth the love of God in him? My little children, let us not love in word, neither in tongue, but in deed and in truth. And hereby we know that we are of the truth, and shall assure our hearts before him. Do you want to make your calling and election sure that God loves you? Then love your brethren. That's chapter 3. Chapter 4. Verse 7. Beloved. Watch these. God is love. What does that mean about us? If we're to show that we're God's. Beloved, let us love one another. For love is of God. And everyone that loveth is born of God and knoweth God. Oh, these are good verses for the evidence of eternal life. He that loveth not, knoweth not God. For God is love. And this was manifested, the love of God toward us, because that God sent His only begotten Son into the world, that we might live through Him. 
Herein is love. Not that we loved God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we ought also to love one another. No man hath seen God at any time. If we love one another, God dwelleth in us, and His love is perfected in us. Hereby know we that we dwell in Him, and He in us, because He hath given us of His Spirit. The Holy Spirit of God gives you the ability to love one another like God loved us. And as God loved us and gave His only begotten Son for us, we ought to lay down our lives for our brethren. And if we have goods that can help someone else better than they can help us, because we've got some extra, we ought to give them to them. When you see people that withdraw themselves and keep themselves separate from the people of God, it shows they don't have a love of others. And if they don't have a love of others, they don't have a love of God. Because if you have the one, you're going to have the other. The two go together. Our religion is this simple. Two commandments. Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, mind, soul, and strength. And thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. This proves the love of God in our lives. It is definitely a transferable, participatory, communicable attribute because God has communicated it to us by His Spirit. He sheds abroad His love for us in our hearts and He gives us the ability in our new men, our new man, to love others. May this be a loving church and may you find by believing the written Word of God and by loving others that your heart, your hearts are assured before Him that you are His And he is yours, because he that loveth dwelleth in God and God in him. May the Lord bless the preaching of his word.